Welcome to the New Wealth Wave podcast hosted by Dr. Joaquin Wallace. We're diving deep into the intricate layers of the seven-stage generational wealth model to offer invaluable insights on legacy building, wealth accumulation and preservation, and financial growth across generations. I'm Dr. Joaquin Wallace, and this is the New Wealth Wave podcast. Hey, Future Wealth Builders, this is Dr. Joaquin Wallace, and thank you for joining me this afternoon on the New Wealth Wave podcast. Today, we are on stage one of the generational wealth model, which we're going to focus on the internal and external ecosystem. And to help me with that will be Tiffany Grant. Now, if this is your first time tapping into the show, you know that this podcast focuses on the seven-step generational wealth model. If you are following us on your favorite podcast platform, just click into the link, and then you can download a copy as well and follow along. We're going to start with stage one. Stage one is the internal and external ecosystem. Stage two is your financial genetic code, which features your, both your financial anxiety as well as trauma. Stage three is financial healing, reprogramming your financial genetic code. Stage four is financial edification, which features financial literacy and inclusion. Stage five is financial well-being. That's what we're all trying to have. Stage six is generational knowledge, which we talk about planning as well as transferring wealth. We're creating those financial footprints. And stage seven is generational wealth. And again, to help me along with navigating through this model, I have our guest is Tiffany Grant, MBA, owner of Money Talk with Tiff. Tiffany is also a fellow podcaster, blogger, and most importantly, an advocate for financial literacy, targeting both community constituents and stakeholders. In addition, she is also an accredited financial counselor. So, Tiffany, this is an opportunity. I may have missed something. I'm going to give you the floor if you can add anything, if you want to add anything for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, you did a wonderful job. I'm happy to be here. You know, Money Talk with Tiff is a financial education platform, and that's what I focus on mainly. But based on our conversation today, you'll see that it stems more than just education. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, although we are targeting stage one, Tiffany has the skill set to actually tap into stage four as well, financial edification. We have enough time. We'll kind of dive into a couple of questions as well. So before we get into the heavy lifting, I always ask all of our guests on the show, tell us a fun fact about yourself. Yes. Yeah, so fun fact is... I'll give you two bonus. So I'm a gamer. So I love playing video games and also I love shooting guns. I used to train for target competitions a little bit ago, but that's one of my hobbies that people are kind of shocked about because I look so, you know, quiet and, and innocent, but I love guns. It's, it's a hobby of mine and I am fully licensed. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So you had a chance to review the model, you know, what was your initial thoughts? I thought this really summarized everything that I have been living, breathing and thinking for a while. And just to see it in this format was really helpful, even for me, because, you know, I talk about all these different things, but seeing it laid out in the way that you put it was really helpful. So is it something that you think that you can use with your clients going forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, this is great for clients because it gives them a visualization of where they are and where we're trying to go with everything. Thank you for that. 
So I have a question for you. This is a three-part question. And I feel this question is going to allow us to lay the foundation on the importance of what we're doing and the work you're doing itself. First, prior to becoming an advocate in this financial literacy space, where were you at on the model? I would say at the very start. So like not even stage one, because a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about today, I had no purview previous to getting into this space. So I would say even before stage one, I was there because I wasn't paying attention to the people I was hanging out with. I wasn't paying attention to any of the other things going on. I was just trying to get through life. I would say that was probably the stage I was at at that time. You know, and it's interesting because when I asked this question, you know, I love for our guests to be transparent to our audience as well, too, because, you know, we're just like they are, right? We don't want them to think that we are because we're in this space for a reason. And so that leads into my next question. You know, what was your aha moment that you knew that it was imminent for you to make a change? Yeah, so I had a few, but I think what pushed me into stage one was hiring a career coach. So I had just graduated from my bachelor's degree and I was trying to figure out like, what am I going to do now? And I hired a career coach, shout out to her because she really worked with me. I didn't have any money. And so, you know, she worked out a plan, but One thing that she pointed out in one of our very first meetings, she made me write out my circle of five. So she said, who are the five people that you talk to the most, spend the most time with? So I wrote all of them out. Then she had me write down, okay, how much do these people make? What do you think? You know, even even if you don't know. So I wrote that out. Then she asked me, where are you trying to be financially? Like, what's a good salary number? And at that time I said, you know, a hundred thousand. That's great. I would love that. And she said, okay, if everybody in your circle is not there, how are you going to get there? And that lesson has sat with me for all of these years that the people that you surround yourself with is a direct correlation of where you're going to go in life. Now, I'm not saying that you don't get rid of your friends because I still have the same friends, but you also have to surround yourself with people that are where you want to go or higher than where you want to go because the conversations just sound different. They look different. I feel like that is really what propelled me into the stage one, thinking about my external factors. And and that's great because when you think about it from that perspective, if we go back to Abraham Maslow's five hierarchy of needs, stage three is your social environment, right? And it's so important. You surround yourself with like-minded individuals because if you don't, you will find yourself, like you said, in a situation where you're not able to grow. And, And sometimes we don't even think about that way, right? Sometimes you have to remove yourself from a situation and you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? <laughs> and oftentimes we're not ready to be uncomfortable. So we stay in an environment, you know, that does not allow us to grow. So with that being said, today, where are you at on the model? So today I will say that I am right there at stage five. I would say I'm right at the tip of the arrow going into stage five is where I am today because I am working towards financial freedom. So I'm operating right in there and the ability to absorb financial crisis. So I am right there at stage five. I've passed stage four. And so, and that's because of education, right? So think of it, you know, being in the space that you are in today, starting where you were at several moons ago, you've seen how you've grown in the model itself. And that's why when I present the model, it's a model that you're constantly negotiating. 
you're navigating each stage throughout. And, and it changes. It changes throughout as well. You may get a new job. So that's going to put you back to stage two in terms of your financial genetic code, because now you're going to have trauma, some anxiety, and you're going to go back to stage one, looking at your internal, external ecosystem. So all of those things do come into play. And until you pretty much expire in life, <laughs> basically, you're going to be on the model throughout, right? You know, you want to get to stage five, as you mentioned, in terms of that soft landing, right? That financial well-being, and then you move to stage six, you know, creating those financial footprints. So with that being said, where do you find many of your clients on the model? Okay. So clients are usually at stage two where they're dealing with financial trauma and financial anxiety. Just to give you an example, I just met with a client the other day and she's like, just looking at these numbers is giving me so much anxiety. Like just having to face, you know, what's going on is a lot for me. And so, you know, just talking them through and walking them through, okay, let's take a breath, you know, we'll work through this, things like that. But usually they're about stage two when they first come to me. I have some clients that may be at stage four, you know, where they just need the educational piece. So maybe they already have the job, they're cool with their, you know, how things are operating, but maybe they don't know how to fully utilize their 401. Okay, or something like that. You know, they might be at like a stage four where they're looking for the literacy, but most is at stage two. When I meet with clients as well, one of the things that I emphasize is that financial inclusion is so important, right? And you mentioned in terms of the 401k, qualified plans, insurances, things of that nature, they don't take advantage of passive income, investments and things of that nature. So important because if you're not able to get your arms around stage four, Stage five is going to be a challenge, right? And we all want to get to that, that financial well-being. But again, you have that financial edification that speaks on literacy, which you spoke about as well, which is so important, budgeting, saving, credit. You, know, you have to be able to get on the field to play the game. I constantly mention that as well. And then you have the inclusion piece that we constantly do not take advantage of because that goes back to our stage one and our stage two things that we've inherently learned. I say that there's willed upon us and that we take that baggage all the way through and we're not able to meet with someone like yourself. Therefore, no financial healing takes place. So we can't reprogram your financial genetic code to get you to move through that product itself, through the model itself. So that's that's so important. Thanks for bringing that up. So mm -hmm. there's a significant emphasis on individuals and a lot of the personal finance advice and information floating around. But that's only one piece of the puzzle. That's what we spoke about. What other things contribute to how someone interacts and behaves regarding money? There's a lot that goes into how we interact with money on a daily basis. And a lot of it, and this is what I tell my clients, is emotional. A lot of it is things that we have been exposed to or experienced or things of that nature. And to make it easier for the audience to follow, I'm going to use the socioecological model. So that model says, okay, the individual is at the center. But then after the individual, there's relationships. Then after that, there's organizations. Then after that, there's communities. After that, policy. And after that, society. So all of these different things play into how the individual operates. And I feel like those things aren't talked about as much in the personal finance community. You know, we're really focused on, okay, what can the person do? Okay, why don't you open a savings account? Why don't you open a bank account? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And not really looking at the full picture that goes into everything. I mean, that's a great answer to the question, kind of tying into that. Within the marginalized communities, 
What do you think is the contributing factor to that lack of knowledge and information? So much. Um, (laughs) So when we're looking at marginalized communities, right? So let me give you a quick example that most people can probably follow. I'm online and I create financial education online. I have the blog, I have the podcast, I have all these things and the information is readily out there, right? But what about people that don't have access to the internet? What about people that don't have access to a computer or a phone or anything to gather this information? And so it's easy to say, oh, well, the information's out there, but how accessible is this information? Because not everybody has the same privileges that we have, right? And so that's one example of how things don't get disseminated all the way. Another example is, you know, if you read, like, for instance, The Color of Law, there's been so much historical policies and things that have worked against marginalized communities for so long that the trust in these systems is out the window. There's so many people that are unbanked or underbanked because they don't want to deal with the banking system. And I don't blame them, you know? There's so much that plays into how marginalized communities kind of are in the situations that they're, they are in right now. And it's not just, oh, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, go do this and do that or whatever. There's other forces at play that also need to be addressed. And it's not just the individual. I truly prescribe to what you're saying. There's so much information that is out there. There's a lot of books that are out there. I mean, you want to talk about financial therapy. I mean, that's a big thing now. Everyone's talking about that. There's tons of books out there. But the problem is these books that are out there, I don't believe they're really directed towards those communities. And so it's hard to to find yourself reading those books that are out there because they're kind of over your head, so to speak. They're not speaking to you. Yes, they're out there, but you know we're not reading them. We talked about the information with social media and things of that nature. Then you have social media and you have Instagram, you have these financial influencers, if you will. They're talking and we're going to get to this, another question down here, but you know, there's a lot of information that's out there, but it's half truth. But we're so starving for information Hey, it must be good because they're on the internet talking about it, right? But for the most part, it's half truths. So Tiffany, we talked about the internal and external ecosystem, the factors that are involved externally. And you you mentioned some of those, but let's talk about learned helplessness. And I'll just give you a definition of it. You know, learned helplessness is a psychological concept that occurs when an individual stops trying to change their situation, even though they can. And I know you run into this sometimes. I had learned helplessness. You know, you talked about, you know, where were you at prior to you being in this space right now? So we all came through some sort of learned helplessness. You know, what's your thoughts upon that? Yeah, I mean, it happens to a lot of people and myself included. So to give you an example, we can just get really comfortable. And when I say comfortable, I'm looking at, for instance, government programs, right? When we look at Roosevelt's New Deal, when it first came out, and when he started, you know, the public assistance, all of that stuff, it perpetuated through the generations. So like, I even have friends where they're grandma was on, you know, government assistance, their mom was on government assistance. Now they're on government assistance. They don't have to be, but they choose to be because that's what they know. And even in my situation, I was on Medicaid for a long time. I was on food stamps for a long time. And it does get comfortable because, you know, you have these things readily available for you, but it takes 
an internal switch <laughs> to go off. Like for me, it was like, you know, I really don't want them in my business all the time, <laughs> you know, cause you always have to, you know, report different things, your income, all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't feel like going through this process. I can't wait until I can get off of this. And so that was like the mindset flip that I had personally where, yeah, it was comfortable and yeah, it kind of quote unquote enabled me to stay in the situation where I was, but I was like, I want more for myself. I want better for myself. And I've even seen it also when I had a, another company where I hired contractors and employees and one employee was like, well, I can't work too much because then I'll lose my disability. And I'm like, but we're going to pay you way more than your disability will ever pay you. But it was just having that safety net there that, you know, can kind of get people comfortable and quote unquote stuck. So that's what I'll say about that. A lot of what you see around you and what other people are doing that really contribute to how you then see the world and how you then see your financial situation. And it goes back to stage one, the internal and external mm -hmm. ecosystem. You know, like I said, this is generationally willed upon us. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mentioned that our first financial fiduciaries were your mom, your dad, your auntie, grandma, friend, cousin, a neighbor across the street, right? Those are the individuals mm -hmm. that provided us financial direction, and good, bad, or indifferent. But that's kind of what we pull the information from. You know, and, and I want to finish up the point you talked about in regards to government subsidy. The program that I had, a welfare to work program, Project Transition, early in the 1990s, my dissertation was basically dealing with welfare to work, created a program and created an idea to provide work for those individuals that are on the system. And in my dissertation, what I talked about was that the welfare check became the surrogate father of the home. It, it kind of talks about what you said in terms of being comfortable. Right. And I referenced my entire um, dissertation on the movie Claudine. I don't know if you had a chance to ever watch Claudine, but with Diane Carroll, like you said, they're in your business. They kind of know what's going on. They can monitor everything, things of that nature. And we become comfortable. And within a dissertation, I also said that welfare was one of the most destructive forces in the African-American community. And it's by design, you know, it's by design. And that's the thing that really breaks my heart because don't get me wrong, I'm all for benefits and using them when you need them and making sure that, you know, you use them, they're out there. But like you said, it can become the surrogate father because to give you an example, if there were two parents in the household and we had the same amount of kids, you might not qualify for food stamps, but I am because I'm a single mom, you know? Um, and so it incentivized being a single mom or a single parent versus having two parents in the household because, you know, you'll be able to get more benefits or even qualify for benefits to begin with. So, yeah. Future Wealth Builders. I mean, we are on a whole different level. Tiffany, we're, we're kind of, we're moving in a, a uncharted waters here, but this is great conversation that we're having. We're talking about some things that I'm very passionate about. So, you know, how do societal and cultural norms influence our spending habits? Let's just look at the Black community as a whole, okay? Now, there's a lot of narrative out there like, oh, Black people don't have wealth and, you know, this, that, and the other. 
But in all actuality, Black wealth is equal to, if not more than now, Canada's whole GDP, you know? So we have money as a collective. We have wealth as a collective. Where we spend our money is usually not within our communities. It's usually not within ourselves. It's usually passing our wealth on to other people. And they know that. Right. You know, that's why you see so much stuff marketed and targeted towards us is because they know that we have money. They know that we will spend it. And so my thing is like when you look at how society like there's so much at play and I can go off on so many tangents when it comes to how things are set up to make us spend the way we do. But also just looking internally at our culture and you see I just had this conversation on social media about, you know, the booths at the club. Like there's nothing wrong with going to the club and having a good time. But now that's looked at as a status symbol. If you get a booth, then you have money. If you have the bottle girls coming around, you have money and everybody's like, oh, look at you, da, 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 da. you know, and, and it becomes the status symbol. And it's the same thing when you look at, for instance, celebrity, like the U.S. as a society, we do a lot of, I don't want to say idol work. But like we look at celebrities and we're like, oh, my gosh, I want to be just like this person, whether it's a athlete, a singer. It doesn't matter what it is, an actor, actress. We're like, oh, my gosh, we want to be like this person. And what that does is fuel a lot of consumerism. And so now we're trying to be like these big celebrities that we see on TV. Meanwhile, they are getting their stuff for free. Like maybe they're getting it, you know, rented to them or the company said, oh, wear this on the red carpet so we can get more publicity or whatever. And we're trying to play catch up with them when they're not even buying it themselves. And so as a society, we have a lot of consumerism in the U.S. for sure. And that plays a part in how we interact with our money as well. That's a great point, because when you look at stage one external ecosystem, you know, I refer to Maslow's five hierarchy of needs. We talked about that earlier. Step three is social, right? Step four is self-esteem. And step five is self-actualization. And oftentimes and not, you know, we are taught by design to pursue the money. And, and I say that, you know, rich is transactional. There's a lot of individuals that we know that became rich and next thing you know, they don't have anything, right? Because rich is transactional. You never find wealthy people mentioning the word rich. They're constantly talking about legacy. They're constantly talking about transferring wealth. And that's the difference between the two, because while we're chasing the dollar, as I always say, we have songs that basically say, get rich or die trying, right? We have songs that mm -hmm. specifically mm -hmm. emphasize chasing the dollar. And again, rich is transactional. And until we can kind of shift that mindset and think of it, no, we have to build generational wealth. Now, the problem is, as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of financial influencers that are out there that are speaking about generational wealth, but they're missing so many pieces. It's mm -hmm. do this and become wealthy, you know, but at the end of the day, wealth is non-sexy. I mean, it really is. It's a slow grind. It's going to happen over time. And you always have to, when you meet with your clients, you have to remind them, unless you have been uh, born into an inheritance or resources, if you will, come from generational wealth, you and I will not, will not experience generational wealth. Generational wealth is for our kids, right? And so we have mm -hmm. to understand the difference between the two. Thank you for kind of tapping into that. So that leads us into the next question. So how does the media, social media, TV, et cetera, impact our perceptions of wealth and success? So we kind of elaborate even more on it now. 
If you look at any lifestyle influencer, right, you know, they might be on the beach one day, they might, you know, be on the boat in the new car, whatever. And then people, they get a lot of engagement because people are like, oh, that's so cool. And psychologically, they're like, oh, I want to be them. So let me follow them because I want to see what they're doing. So maybe I can do the same thing. And especially when you're looking at financial trauma, and I know we're not talking about this today, but if you see these people doing all these great things, you're pretty much seeing their highlight reel, right? Then if you're not in the situation where you can afford these things or you can do these things too, you're like, oh, well, what am I doing wrong? What's wrong with me? Why am I not doing all this stuff? Why can't I do this stuff? Not realizing that that is their highlight reel. Like you're not seeing the full story. You're not seeing how they got there. You're not seeing what they're doing. And I actually made a post like this on social media the other day where I showed how long I had been blogging and how long I had been podcasting before the things really took off. And so I showed the whole chart showing that and people were like, oh my gosh, I didn't know it was so long. I didn't know that, you know, there were days where I had zero views on the website, zero podcast downloads. You know, people are just seeing what has happened now. And so I say that to say, when you're looking at social media, Take it for what it is, okay? You are only seeing people's highlight reels. And when you start comparing yourself, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, you're depriving yourself of being grateful for what you do have, right? Because if you're seeing all of these people, they're like, oh, I wish I had that. I wish I had this. But do you have a roof over your head? Were you able to wake up this morning? You know, being grateful for those things can really take you a long way. And that is one of my gripes really with social media in general. I know I'm going on a tangent, but it's like we are constantly seeing people's highlight reels and it takes us away from our reality. And a lot of people use, use it in that way, but it takes us away from our reality. And so we become less and less grateful for what we do have. And to me, I feel like that is also a big way that you can build wealth is just being grateful and treating what you have with the utmost <laughs> importance and, you know, and, and stuff like that. So that ties in to episode five of our podcast. And we talked about financial anxiety, the financial genetic code. And one of the aspects that Dr. Marsh and Rubin mentioned was gratification, you know, being grateful for what you have and kind of talked about gratification, which is something that in regards to self-talk, we don't do that enough. And we constantly, as you said, we want the end result. We're in that microwave generation that we want instant gratification. And that's why I said earlier that, you know, rich is transactional. You know, that's what mm -hmm. we're trying to get to versus understanding that, no, it's not sexy in terms of wealth, but you're building a legacy. You're transferring your assets. You're doing things the right way. What we want to do is we want to circumvent the model. We just want to go from one stage to stage seven. Well, that can't happen, right? You have to go through the entire six to seven stage, kind of walk through and navigate. And that's what you and I are doing now. So Tiffany, what role do peer groups, friends, coworkers, et cetera, play in shaping our financial behaviors? Yeah. So this is something that's not really talked about much, but it's so important to realize if you work for someone, you are with your coworkers the majority of your day. So if you work eight, nine, 10, 12 hours, sometimes you are with your coworkers most of the time. So of course, if they're talking about something financial going on in their life, then you're going to pick that up. And so to give you an example, real life example of what happened to me when I was working in HR, my coworker, 
worker, she was going through the process of buying a house, right? So she would come to work and she's like, oh, Tiffany, what do you think about this house? Oh, what do you think about this? And da, 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 da. And so I was helping her through the process and I felt so invested in the process. And at the time I was running. And so I said, you know what? I wonder if I buy a house, like what does that look like for me? And so I ended up, you know, using her same team and getting my house and things like that. But it all stemmed from that conversation. Now, that's a good example of how this can play out. But there are also not so good examples. And let's say, for instance, your coworker just came back from their trip in Jamaica and they're like, oh, look at my pictures. Look at look, you, look at what we did and this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, like, I really want to do that too. Now, you're not seeing what if they had to sacrifice something for that. You're not seeing if they just put it all on afterpay. You're not seeing if they had to deplete their savings for it. You're not seeing if they were able to save up and pay for cash. Like you're not seeing any of that. But now that's a goal that you have. I say that to say, going back to the original point where I, I looked at my circle of five, the people that you surround yourself can really have impact, whether it be good or bad on your finances, because these are the people that you're spending the most time with. And you might be saying, well, my coworkers are not my friends, but guess what? You spend a lot of time with them. <laughs> and so that still needs to be taken into consideration. It doesn't necessarily have to be your friends. It could just be people that you spend a lot of time with. And that impacts how we view our money. Give you another example. If someone's like, oh, I don't make enough. And you know that they're making, let's say $50,000. Meanwhile, you're making, let's say 40. And you're like, well, what do they mean? They don't make enough, you know? <laughs> and so it becomes that thing where, you know, you try not to compare yourself, but as humans, this is something that we just do innately, even if we try not to. And so we may be looking at that and trying to make our finances look the same way as someone else's when really personal finance is very personal. And so the, I'll get off my soapbox, but <laughs> I have to do it now. I have to do it. We're going to talk about stage four. You know, we're going to move from one. We're going to tap into four future wealth builders. Bear with me because Tiffany, <laughs> she's forcing me to talk about stage four. So here's the question for you. So you mentioned the fact that, you know, you have individuals working in the position you had before. People will say, hey, you know, I don't make enough money, but we know that may not be the case. In your estimation, how many people actually prescribe to a budget? I would say maybe 80%. And that might be generous too. And I might be biased because people usually come to me because they want to, you know, get on budgeting and things. But I would say probably 80, 85% being generous of people out there probably do some form of budgeting because budgeting can look so very different to many people. I just had a client the other day where their budgeting looks like buckets. You know, they just like to put different amounts of money in different accounts so they know exactly how to spend it or what have you. Some people, they just jot down, okay, I know I make this much. Okay. I know these are my expenses and they might have pen and paper. Some people use Excel. Some people use F. So it looks very different for many people, but I would say probably about 85%. And you're being uber generous. I'm very generous. <laughs> the people that I can run into is definitely not at 80%. But you know, one of the things that, you know, I want to talk about in regards to budgeting. So, you know, one area we're talking about budgeting. And when I meet with clients, I ask them a couple of questions. You know, one question I ask, do you know what disposable income is? And then I say, do you know what discretionary is? And 
I would say for the most part, they say no. I say, okay, that's fine. So now let's talk about, let's look at your physiological needs, right? So let's look at that food, water, shelter, things you have to have. And I asked them, I say, if you have an idea of what your disposable income is and what discretionary is, discretionary is your wants, it would help you in regards to budgeting. So you have the traditional, right? The 50, 30, 20 rule that you can use that, but it's different, right? It's different. I walked them through some exercises, but you know, one of the most difficult aspects that I find, and you can support me on this, I find that the most difficult aspect for people saving is the concept of paying themselves first. The floor is yours. Go for it. What do you think about that? <laughs> I know you saw, like, as soon as that question hit, I said, oof, because that's one thing that even I struggled with for a long time. But my grandpa told me, Tiffany, always pay yourself first. He's like, the bill, you know, the bills, they'll get their money, but you always pay yourself first. And I didn't really get it until I got it because he told me this a long time ago, but it wasn't until personally I was like running this business. I'm like, dang, like the business is running fine, but I feel like I'm struggling on the back end, you know? And it made me realize, well, Tiffany, if you're not paying yourself, then how do you think you're going to pay your bills? How, how is this business going to continue to run if you're not taking care of yourself? And so that's when it dawned on me, like, you know, grandpa did say that way back when to always pay yourself first. And this is something, especially my business owners struggle with all the time because maybe they're barely making ends meet in the business and so they're like how can I pay myself you know how can I do this extra thing with money but really that is the first thing you should be doing forget everything else and forget everybody else you should be paying yourself a percentage of that money and what I've noticed is when I started paying myself more I started having more and it's weird how that works but I noticed that when I started paying myself first, then I started attracting more money to me in my business. And so that's something that I always tell people, make sure you're paying yourself. And even if you don't have a business, paying yourself can look like making sure that you have your 401k deductions or making sure that, you know, you automatically have some going to savings or whatever, whatever it is that you have access to. Make sure that you're at least taking something. And I tell people, you don't have to do a tremendous amount either. Like I did like $25 a month into my retirement account, you know, because that's all I could afford at the time. But it automatically came off the top and I automatically paid myself first. So those are different ways that that can look, but it's so important. And like I said, in my case, I realized that when I did that, I actually attracted more. Noble concept, right? Pay yourself first, you attract more money, right? Another question I ask clients, tell me your most critical asset. And and I'm not being generous here. I would say north of 90% will give me a physical asset. And I say, no, you're your most critical asset. So if you're your most critical, first, then I would ask them to define what an asset is, something that appreciates, you put money into it, appreciates, it grows. I say, well, isn't that what you are? You're, you're your most critical asset. Therefore, goes back to our concept, you have to pay yourself first. If you pay yourself first, you're making sure that you're taking care of the most critical asset, which is yourself. As you mentioned earlier, your grandfather told you, hey, listen, your physiological needs, your disposables will always be there. You can take care of that. 
your wants is where you have to negotiate that. You have to figure out, you know, what's my wants, you know, social. And I always say, hey, listen, safety, social, self-esteem, self-actualization, right? Those are your four most critical costs that you're going to make, right? We're going to pay for safety. We have to have it. But social, you hanging out with your friends, that's a big cost. Self-esteem, clothes, the things that you buy, those are your wants. That's a big cost. And self-actualization, how you see yourself is the biggest cost. That's where you have to negotiate and understand the difference between the two, between disposable and discretionary. But it goes back to stage one of our internal and external ecosystem, right? Because this is what we were taught. This is what we've mm-hmm. seen. The external environment, this is what we see. You know, So if that's what I see, if that's what I deem successful, then that's what I'm going to do, put most of my effort into. Again, very important concept. I know we kind of digressed a bit, but I think it's very value in conversation because again, stage four is important, but it goes back to stage one. So let's go back to stage one. <laughs> so how do macroeconomics trends, policies, and fluctuations impact our finances? Yeah, so they play a huge part. And to give you kind of a real-time example, if we look at the new SAVE plan for student loans, right? So the Biden administration just created the SAVE plan. So this is a new policy that's saying, okay, instead of 10% of your disposable income, we're only going to look at five. And that's what we're going to base your student loan repayments on. So When you look at that, you're like, oh, you know, we just went over what disposable and discretionary income is. So now you're like, oh, well, I don't have to pay as much in student loans. But mind you, this all came from policy. Right. Or we can look at the covid checks, you know, that all stemmed from policy and that infused a lot of money into the economy, which is why we see the inflation that we see now. So it's all tied in together. And this also affects how we spend our money. You're not going to go to the grocery store and say, well, I think eggs should be $2 because that's what they used to be. I'm not paying this inflation. It's not going to happen. Like you're going to have to pay whatever it is that you need to pay in order to get that item. And so policy is a huge part in how we spend our money. And I have so many examples. For instance, let's take your your real estate taxes, right? Your city and your county sets those. If they decide one day, oh, well, we're going to go up, which happened here in Greensboro, North Carolina, back, you know, when prices of real estate was high, they just so happened to recalculate everybody's taxes. And so now you're paying more in taxes. You were paying less before. So policy plays a huge part And that's why it's so important for there to be people that do work on the financial policy aspects of things to ensure that everybody is treated fairly and equally in these situations. You can also look at how they gerrymander, you know, all of the voting. That's because they're trying to get certain things accomplished and nine times out of 10, it's not going to help a marginalized community. I can go off on so many tangents and give so many examples of how policy plays a part in our money, but that's why um, paying attention to what's going on, voting, making sure you're getting out there and having a say in what is going on, making sure that you're paying attention to the economy and what's going on in the economy. Back when, you know, we were getting the COVID checks, I was like, ooh, like, this is not going to be good. Like I was happy that it was there. I was glad to get my little check, but I was like, this is not going to be good for the economy down the road. And lo and behold, here we are. And so just, 
think about things. And this goes back again to stage four, educating yourself on how the economy works, how policy works, how these things have a kind of trickle down effect to your pocket will just make you more apt to understand and see, oh, like I could see ahead of time that this is what's going to happen. And then you can make, you know, different moves with your money around that. Excellent point. And I love how you tie it in stage four again, because again, we're, we're, we're constantly navigating. It's um, a holistic approach. We're looking at every aspect. You, you're never removed from the model itself, especially when you get into your adult life, right? Once you begin playing bills, mm-hmm. you are on one of those stages. <laughs> when you look at you know what we were trying to accomplish, we looked at stage one, but we kind of delved into stage four. I mean, thank you, future world builders. I mean, I hope you took a lot of notes. A final question for you. What do you want the listeners to take away from this podcast? Yeah. So tying into what I just said, stay educated, keep your head on a swivel, like we like to say, (laughs) stay aware of what's going on externally, whether it's your immediate external environment, like your friends, family members, peers, whatever, or the macro level. So looking at policy, economy, things like that, just keep aware, check in with yourself and see how you're processing that. Because I feel like that's helpful. You, You have to have the awareness. Once you have the awareness, then you can educate yourself and then you can make the change. So that's what I would leave with the audience. And if someone would like to gain access to your services, I mean, you do a great job of what, you know, in terms of your your podcast and your blogging and things of that nature, you know, how would someone get in contact with you? Yeah. So you can find me at moneytalkwitht.com. That's the website. Ton of information there. You can listen to me on the podcast, Money Talk with Tiff, wherever you're listening to this one. And then also all over social media, because although I have a love-hate relationship, I'm everywhere. I got to meet people where they are. So I'm at Money Talk with T on all the platforms. This was outstanding. I mean, Tiffany Grant came on and laid down the science. I mean, she sounded like a PhD going into this. So as we end the podcast, again, we'd like to thank Tiffany Grant for coming on. And remember, future wealth builders, generational wealth begins with generational knowledge. Thank you for joining us on the New Wealth Wave podcast hosted by Dr. Joaquin Wallace. Our show is edited and produced by Ray Haycraft. To dive deeper into the world of financial wisdom and learn how to create your financial footprints, head to our website at www.drjwallace.com. For more updates and exclusive content, connect with us on social media by searching Dr. Joaquin Wallace. And if you have questions and comments, feel free to email us at thenewwealthwaypodcast at gmail.com. Remember, generational wealth begins with generational knowledge. And as always, thanks for listening. The content presented in this podcast is strictly for educational purposes and should not be taken as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of the New Wealth Way podcast and its host or producers. Listeners are urged to exercise discretion and judgment before making any financial or investment decisions. Always consult with a financial professional or advisor before taking any action based on the content of this podcast. If you're enjoying the New Wealth Way podcast, we appreciate if you leave us a review. We're always open to topic suggestions and guest recommendations. Feel free to reach out to us directly with your thoughts and feedback. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the New Wealth Way podcast.